necessarily relevant, but I will say that like I've been regretting my vote for Biden a little bit more. Oh no. As I've been talking to more people who voted for like one of like the socialist liberation parties or the green party or whatever. And I don't know. I, they, maybe they seem a little bit smug. I, maybe that's it. Seem? But maybe that's just my actual shame for having voted for Biden. The arguments like that Brianna Joy Gray was making even before the election, maybe they've been starting to sink in with me a little bit in terms of just like voting with blind allegiance gets you basically nothing, you know? Yeah, but this time, James. This time's <laughs> this time, right? This time's not like all those other times. No, not at all, because the the Cheeto beast. Right. Yeah, but I mean, won't there just be some other Cheeto beast? No, I have never seen Joe Biden spray tan, so. (laughs) Well, it's the compostman of history. Uh, This is the podcast where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and mix them around with the new ones. And this week, we're heading to the Alamo, Jared, down in old San Antonio. Yeah, we're going to find out why we got to build a wall around them, or whatever we're doing. Build a wall around us? I was never clear about that. Well, we're going to find out why they had to build a wall around the Alamo, around the mission of San Antonio. We're going to find out all about how that came into being. We're going to find out about the the political economy that went into it, the economics of colonialism to kind of pick up from where we were off last week. And we're going to end up with building the wall around a bunch of religious pilgrims in Texas. All right. But who paid for it? Mexico? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Ah, oh, damn it! <laughs> it's never as neat and tidy as you'd like it to be. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like you've done some research. I've done a lot of research on this one, but I think that you're actually a good person to do this with on this particular topic, as an expert in the grand strategy of colonialism. Oh, thanks, man. One of the things that I guess brought jared and i together was our shared love of paradox games grand strategy what are they called like 10x or whatever where basically you control this colonialism period of history and the sad thing is is that jared has like done this so much that if he had been like a mid-level bureaucrat in the spanish like vice royalty he probably would have done pretty well for himself oh yeah just be going after all those gold mines baby I mean, it would, it would be a lot like your current job in some ways. You know, you would just have to be dealing with like the ineptitude of the bosses back in Madrid. Yeah. And you're down there in Veracruz and you're like looking at the, the situation as it is and trying to move things around and make it happen. Yeah. And ignore the pain and suffering of all the people that get caught in the mix. Well, we'll talk about that, you know, because one of the interesting things I think when we talk about New Spain in particular 
is how it was different than the English colonized um, 13 colonies in terms of the way that it interacted with the indigenous people who were already living there. And that is going to actually be an important difference, especially when we actually get to the time period of the Battle of the Alamo, because that kind of like, you know, snowballing cultural effect that comes from this initial attitude on the part of the colonists actually kind of helps to explain why there were these divisions within Texas at the time. So let's pick it up with the first major player in the story. And then we'll kind of, well, this is just like two different set of colonizers with different accents fighting about land. Right. I mean, basically um, a lot of it was also religiously motivated as we kind of hinted at a lot of it came down to a reflection of the, the wars of the Protestant reformation in Europe that was happening simultaneously. And colonialism kind of was an, an arms race in essence that was playing out in the new world. Right. So some people are fighting for people are fighting for God and some other people are fighting for Dios. Yeah. Well, it, it's, um, gold, God, and glory. Well, that's all the same thing, right? <laughs> I mean, basically, right? Like that's why you go and do colonialism is because you need to get rich. You need to tell people you're doing it so that you can convert people to Christianity. And the real reason you're doing it is so that you can have glory. Your name will last yeah. for generations. Wait a minute. What was the Pope up to at this time period? Is this why it's called a glory hole? <laughs> <laughs> he was doing the treaty of tortoisieras i think i mispronounced that <laughs> where the pope divided the whole of the planet earth between portugal and spain two shithole countries that weren't even countries yet in europe like not even in europe in the iberian peninsula he was like well everything else has to belong to either portugal or spain and a lot of that, you know, is uh, reflected in the way the world is right now, unfortunately. We had no idea what was even out there, right? No. It was just no. like, he, yeah, you know, Spain's got a lot of gold. They could probably get more gold. Uh, they can have Well, it. exactly, because all these guys, you know, the Roman Catholic Church at this time period, and we're talking around the years leading up to Columbus, right? We're talking 1450, 1470s that type of uh, uh, timeline. The Roman Catholic Church was basically synonymous with the state. So this is pretty close to like when Da Vinci was messing around. Exactly, yeah. Just a little before Da Vinci, right? Early Enlightenment, yeah. But, you know, just like with Da Vinci, a lot of his work was for the Roman Catholic Church, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had the, like, patronage system. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's how Columbus got going. He had the biggest patron in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if I shouldn't just jump in with Spain instead of uh, the way I was going to originally do it. Oh, I don't know. Let's let's put that on the back burner, though, because okay. we're going to come right back to it in a few minutes. OK, well, I'll shut up then and we'll do what you <laughs> back to our normal, <laughs> back to our normal program. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I think you're going to have a lot, a lot to, to run with with this, because I do want to introduce the first major player in the actual Battle of the Alamo. And in terms of the setup in the aftermath, I think that no one person who was there has a more significant role than Santa Ana, 
the Santana general. No, uh, you're getting into classic rockers again. <laughs> <laughs> there was you had Ozzy Osbourne, I David mean, Bowie, and Santana. Santana is pretty influential the down there. <laughs> no, this is Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Oh, okay, this guy he was basically uh, kind of the Joe Biden of Mexico oh, a no. little bit, in the sense that there's some important similarities. <clears throat> okay. He was born into upper middle class, merchant class family. Same as Joe Biden. Also in a port city, just like with the Bidens of Delaware, right? An area of commerce on the seaboard, but <laughs> not... There, is that like a Terry Redland painting? Isn't there a plant that's <laughs> called Bidens? <laughs> there is a there is a genus of... I think Asteraceae okay. called Bidens. Are, are there any of them in Delaware? <laughs> oh, de- there's probably. I won't. I'm not. I'm, I'll check later. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, from a similar background, same type of, of situation. And as history kind of played out, Santa Ana was always either in power or adjacent to power. He was able to attract a very like, powerful following a lot of people like really believed in him and you know uh supported him but at the same time if you look at his record it's pretty obvious that he was just in it for himself and that he kind of just rolled with the political winds was flipping sides a lot on important issues and in retrospect a lot of people who are like uh, historians of mexican history kind of see him as one of the people who failed mexico okay well, that's ominous. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna like forecast. I think Biden will probably be remembered as one of the people who failed what was once the United States of America. But no, no, no. It's <laughs> it's not 2020 anymore. <laughs> Hell, world is over. Everything's Happy New good. Year. <laughs> Everything's good, man. Everything's fine now. Pelosi got reelected, so we're saved. But yeah, so let's continue with Santa Ana. So. Santa Ana is importantly a racially elite Criollo. This is also called Creole, and I think that's like the French word for it. Okay. But basically, he's from a family of people who were like pure Spanish blood, even though they had settled in the New World sometime before this. But that uh, that basically affords him access to like a level of society that someone who was of even Spanish descent mixed with, you know, indigenous um, origin heritage, they wouldn't have access to that same level of power, right? So this is in 1794 in Veracruz, New Spain, what, what is today Veracruz, Mexico. And... We'll get into the environmental history aspect of this really quick, because the fact that even though he's of Spanish descent, the fact that he's born in Veracruz means that he is essentially exposed to the endemic diseases of the area from childhood, specifically like yellow fever. And yellow fever was like a huge problem for any European or non uh, local area population that was trying to like fight in that area. So right off the bat, he's got some level of immunity. 
so if we think about like this time period of the 1790s, I think this also really tells the class that we're talking about when we consider that his father, Licenciado Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, was a university graduate. And if you're thinking like university graduate in the 1790s, <laughs> how many I universities mean, who... <laughs> were there in Mexico? I mean, I think there was like three or four. I, there wasn't a huge number. But, how many were even in the U.S. Know, for that? So, I mean, gosh, probably like Yale. I think was probably established before then. But yeah, you know, this is a person who you know was from a pretty like blue blood family, if not you know just landed gentry from the old world, oh, yeah. right? That's this kind guy, of what separated <clears throat> from that. This guy is in a class above me, like. 300 years before i was born or 200 years right. before i was born right and and yet though the the job still exists today like he's a lawyer for for merchants he's a lawyer for you know shipping and and transportation companies and it's it affords you the same access to wealth and power then as it does now probably more right the, the disparity would have been even greater yeah, there were fewer people to work with back then, right? So you had even more access. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like back then, you know, 50 years ago, maybe nobody even spoke your language in that area. Right. Yeah. That's that's also a great point because all of the resources, the, the populations of these areas, this is in that stage of primitive accumulation where... Um, <clears throat> you accumulate things by killing all of the primitives. Right. Exactly. And so basically, you know, we think of this as the Wild West, right? That's primitive accumulation in America. It's the Wild West. Although this area, Veracruz, it had been settled for like a long time. By 1793, you're, you're like 250 years after the, the conquest of Tenochtitlan by Hernan Cortez, right? So there is, there is a lot of development that's gone on in that interim. Santa Ana's father wanted him to become a merchant. He wanted him to become a shopkeeper, specifically. But his mother was also pretty well-connected, and she was actually pretty friendly with the governor of the province. Ooh. Yeah. So, at he's the age a, of 16... He's got himself a saucy mommy, huh? Yeah, saucy mom. Also not a lady to be pushed around. She calls in a favor with she's, the governor she's sticking of Veracruz. she gets her son um a military appointment even though he's only 16 years old which even at the time was not supposed to happen like the 16 year old was not supposed to be in the military but santa ana got in age 16 because his mom called in a favor as like an officer uh he was not an officer yet but basically he was entered in above all of those you know like poor enlisted people he wasn't a great conscripts no, definitely not a grunt, but not a full officer yet. He was going to war school. Right. Murder yeah. school. Yeah, it's murder <laughs> Yeah. And he's going to murder a lot of people and a lot of Texans. Well, that's what he went to school for. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's, he's doing his job. <laughs> Don't hate the player, dude. It's another one of those like funny what what history would have been moments if you just consider like if Santa Ana had listened to his father and just become like a shopkeeper. But then again, some someone else would have done the same shit probably. All right, so now I do want to kind of clip back to what we had started off talking about, which was 
the politics of New Spain and how New Spain even came into being in the first place. Like, how do you get like this vast colonial empire? Wow. Old Spain, you know, had a little bit of a drinking and drug problem and <laughs> was kind of throwing it around town a little bit. And then, you know, yeah. had to get born again. And then it was New Spain. Talk to yeah. the Pope, you know, get a little direction in life. Well, we've already talked a little bit about the Pope. The Pope's going to continue to play a huge role in this story. Hell yeah. Did and in you, fact... Have you eaten the Pope yet in that, in that game? No, I haven't. <laughs> in, in Crusader Kings? God damn it. <clears throat> I won't allow myself to play that because I just don't have time. But when I do, I'm eating that Pope. Oh, yeah. You got... Well, I, I need to. I need to go full cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shame on um, you. I can't believe you haven't yet. This is during the Crusader Kings period of European history, right? We talked a little bit about this last time, which was that this is all about the dynasties. This is Game of Thrones shit, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it's not Spain. It's Isabella of Castile. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like feudalism basically going on. So for just some, like, Joe Schmo peasant at that time, right? Just some asshole standing in a field in France. They have they don't have any idea what France is. They don't know what France means, right? Their their relationship is to their their lord and king. Yeah. They can't even communicate with other quote unquote French people. Like right. If they're they, bound. If they live well, I mean, even if they traveled a thousand miles or right. five hundred miles, they wouldn't even speak the same language completely. Yeah. Like, yeah. The type of people who are moving around at this time, again, it's that wealthy upper yeah. class, right? Yeah, like Italy wasn't a thing yet. And even today, like people that were living in like Florence cannot speak to the people that live in like Napoli. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because when you think about colonialism, it's first done by basically, yeah, the, the wealthy house dynasties. And then the second wave is done by all the strivers, all the people who like saw that first wave happen, who had been waiting in the wings the the middlemen and clerks and bureaucrats who said now we're gonna go and do our own now we're gonna take our entrepreneurial spirit across the seas yeah and you know populate illinois and um well first first we're gonna have to depopulate it and then we can populate (laughs) it right so this is during habsburg spain the habsburgs are the austrian royal family so how the hell do you get in a Habsburg dude into Spain? That's that's the first question that we're going to try and answer. Well, here. you got to call your cousin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Spain in the 15th century consisted of several independent kingdoms. Did they have any banjos in Spain at that time? Um, I think they were playing like lutes. Okay. So just the inbreeding? Yeah. Okay. Well, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna kick this off with the marriage of Isabella of Castile, the heiress of the Castilian kingdom, to Ferdinand of Aragon, the heir of Aragon. These are both these are both kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula, and th- as they, as you said, Jared, they were second cousins. Mm-hmm. And this is what this is what we call in um fancy european aristocracy language consanguineous marriage okay we just call it incest nowadays but that's that's what was happening 
And because it was <laughs> that's consanguineous. That nice, that's how you get blue blood. You just start having <laughs> sex with people you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because it was consanguineous incest, they needed special permission from the Pope. So basically the the like and the Pope's dynasties. Like, yeah, dude, hook that Hell shit. Yeah. <laughs> that the Pope was bas I mean, again, everyone's just playing Crusader Kings during this time period. Like they're just like, Yeah, let's get some cousin fucking going on. Let's clean that blood up. You can't have poor people in that blood. You can't have heaven forbid dude, what if there was the blood of a Muslim in there? Could you fucking believe that shit? Holy fuck. Nobody was just like why are these motherfuckers talking about blood so much, dude? <laughs> and yet they were, right? But because that that was the whole thing with these lineages. So the product of this consanguineous marriage is Joanna of Castile. This is also during like the great chain of being though, right? Like people That had... was a little bit later. That was a little later than this. This was that was more enlightenment era but pre-scientific thinking cuz I know what you're talking about there. The idea that there was like some great chain of being that, you know, the reason that there was like uh, what we now call morphological similarities. Well, I mean, it's just like the thing where, you know, there are like royalty type people and there are peasant type people. Yeah. Yeah. But and, and it's the same as like, you know, saying there are like apes and there are Africans and then there are Africans and then there are Europeans and there are European peasants and there are European royal nobles and there's European nobles and European royalty. Yeah. Right. That's oh, the great chain of being. Hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And the nobility is right there at the top. Right. Yeah. With Joanna of Castile and her blue blood being. Yeah. Speaking of her blue blood, there's like also potentially like ghosts in her blood. Right. She might just have bad blood and then we got to like <laughs> release some of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so Joanna of Castile did, she basically was like inbred crazy. Oh, like tight. in terms of <laughs> actually what happens. I love learning about some Habsburgs, dude. <laughs> so dude, here's the, so she gets married to the Habsburg, right? She just gets passed off to bring the Habsburgs in. She's already like a different inbred and now she's marrying into a different inbred family. <laughs> Yes. Oh my god, this is like this is some shit the Nazis would have been jealous of. Oh yeah, they would have loved it. But here's the sad thing for Joanna of Castile though, right? She's inbred crazy. And so as soon as she has a kid with Philip the Habsburg of the Austria, this was in 1496. As soon as they have a kid, she basically gets thrown in the locked up in the crazy house. You know, she, she's, she's just like, <laughs> she's just like, all right, you did your job now go over there. Well, dude, it's so sad because she lives for like a long more time, but they like, they literally won't let her family visit her. And she's basically just like kept in isolation for decades. Like people were just horrible. I mean, great chain of being everyone who lived in fucking 1496 was a monster. Awful, awful people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, whoa, hold on. In, just the wealthy nobility in Europe. <laughs> Just the wealthy nobility of Europe. In yes. Europe. Awful, awful people. In that made-up Western civilization. I mean, the wealthy nobility is always terrible, right? Like, they're always the worst fucking people. Well, what about Confucius? Yeah, terrible! <laughs> I know, but people are supposed to think he's not. People, like, think that Confucius is this, no like, wise person to, like, take life lessons from. <clears throat> and he's not. He's a shithead. I, I say to that, um, you need some Lao Tzu to, to remedy that, that case of confusion. I just pissed off like half the world's population, didn't I? 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, President Xi. Um... <laughs> so, yeah, Joanna, poor Joanna of Castile, you know, she's she's like marriage fodder, right? But a couple of important things happen in 1492 in Spain. You probably already know about one of them. 1492. Right. In 1492, Isabella of Castile agrees to sponsor Christopher Columbus in his transatlantic voyage. Didn't that was he, one of the... Didn't he try things. to get the money from the Pope first? Yeah. He shopped it around for a while. Yeah. You know? People are like, you're crazy, dude. Uh, the world I mean, isn't flat. As we're going to see in a little bit here, Jared, colonialism is like lockstep with the development of global markets. Oh, of course. Lockstep. Yeah. You why only you, have global markets. Why do you think they did it? Why do you think Isabella did it? Prestige, gold, money, God. Hell yeah. It's all the same thing. Uh, she was a girl boss. And so she was treating all those people very well. Hell and... yeah, dude. <laughs> <clears throat> so that was one of the things. The other thing that was actually more important Maybe not historically, but if you think about the cartwheeling ramifications of both of these events, it's hard to say which is more important. You also have the completion of the Reconquista and the fall of Nasrid Granada in at the very southern tip of oh, yeah. the Iberian Peninsula. <clears throat> Making Iberia great again. Right. The last Muslim empire holdout, basically, at this point, gets thrown out of Spain. In Spain, only like 700 years prior... The whole Iberian Peninsula was all Umayyad Caliphate. So this has been a long-term project. <laughs> I wonder if you could find a book in Spanish at that time in Spain that said that. <laughs> I mean, the Umayyads throughout the Visigoths, who had come there from Eastern Europe. <laughs> Property rights, I mean, huh? It's just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Property rights. <laughs> Spain has always been Visigothic, and it will always be mm -hmm. Visigothic. <laughs> None of those damn Ostrogoths, damn it. <laughs> you fucking Ostrogoths need to stay on your side of the Pyrenees. <laughs> well, I bet you ran out of food and stuff because you're lazy and, uh, you know, barely human. <laughs> you tell him, Othodic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is probably our nerdiest show now. <laughs> <clears throat> So yeah, that was a big that was a big event in Spain, but it was also a big event for the Catholic Church. Because basically as they're, you know, walking through slowly southward the Iberian Peninsula, driving these Muslim rulers out of their lands, the the Catholic Church is essentially the people who are responsible for, yeah, actually physically throwing the Muslims out. And then, you know, cleansing the heresy. You got to destroy all these, you know, pagan idols and whatever. Including the right? Jews, right? Yeah. And, you know, you have the, what do they call it? The Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. As well. Which makes it all the way to the New World. All right. So, Joanna of Castile marries Philip Habsburg of Austria and the Holy Roman Empire in 1496. And... They spawn Charles I, who will eventually be the big dick of Europe, ruling Spain, Austria, and the entire Holy Roman Empire 
which you should be thinking basically like Germany, Burgundy, the low countries, <clears throat> that, that area. They were the European Union, uh, the European Union before it was cool. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Charles the first has it all right. So what do you do when you have the entire wealth of Europe concentrated behind a single person? You got to find more. You got to find more wealth, obviously. Yeah. You can't go and like build a better society or something. Yeah. What are you going to do? Send... Travel <laughs> all of the places that you own and see the beauty of it and just chill the fuck out. No. Right. No, you're like going to make it everyone else's problem that you own everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking cunt. <laughs> and in 1519, Charles I sends Magellan on his circumnavigation quest. And that was a good thing. Well, I mean, I don't know. It happened. Now, I took history <laughs> <So>. <laughs> class. That was a good thing. <laughs> I mean, it probably didn't need to happen. I mean, that's one of those I mean, things that gets Ben Shapiro's <laughs> dick hard when he thinks about Western civilization. I mean, I think when you look at like the the Pacific Islanders and their maritime civilization, I think you got to say that pretty much everywhere that, you know, these guys were going had already been explored by other people. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, right. <laughs> you think people figured out boats before them? <laughs> I don't buy it. <laughs> well, Ferdinand Magellan actually makes it to the Philippines, which is in Southeast Asia. And he goes the long way, by which I mean he goes around the entire North American, South American landmass to get over there instead of sailing around Africa. I mean, he didn't really go and, the wrong way, though, right? He was kind of just like wandering around. I mean, basically, he was trying to circumnavigate, right? He was just trying to see if he could go all the way around. I yeah. mean, everyone knew that you could, but he was just wanting to, like, do it, basically. Okay. But the economic incentive, though, was interesting. Because the whole point was so that you could establish trade with China. And I know what you're thinking, Jared. You're thinking Europe, China, that's the same landmass. It's called Eurasia, right? Yeah. Why don't they just walk over to China and do some trade and then walk back to Europe? Oh, why don't why they? Why do you got to sail around the world? Yeah. Uh, well, you go ahead and try to go through the Ottoman Empire if they don't want you to. <laughs> That's right. There's all those pesty Muslims there. And I mean, at this which, point, I mean, sure, at this point in time, they were pesky as fuck, dude. <laughs> they kept trying to conquer Habsburg, Austria. Yeah. Right? And did a pretty yeah. goddamn good job, too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know how terrified though... people in the U.S. were of like Muslim people after 9-11? Yeah. With like very little reason. If you mm -hmm. lived in fucking Austria or like Albania at this time. Yeah. You had really good reason to be terrified of the Muslims. You had legitimate reason. Yeah. I'll give them. I'll give like the people of Vienna after being besieged twice by <laughs> Ottoman armies. I'll give them reason to be afraid. Yeah. Now the Pope ain't helping you out much. But <laughs> the Pope uh, doesn't give a fuck by this point. Well, the Pope's it, high on meth. Yeah. <laughs> he's He's like. Drinking ergot. Okay, the Catholic <laughs> Church, though, like, started this shit, kind of, though. Yeah. But, yeah, so you can't just do it the easy way because of all the Muslims over there. So you have to sail all the way around South America so you can go and do trade with, uh, with the merchants of China and Southeast Asia. 
in April of 1521, Magellan actually makes it to the Philippines. And he starts to do the, the second part of the GGG, gold, God, glory. He's going to start converting some people to Christianity. But unfortunately, the Muslims had already gotten there. So he's got all these Muslim people hanging around too. Man, don't you hate it when that happens? <sighs> very, very unfortunate. But of course, he thinks that he, you know, having already sailed halfway around the world, has basically the strength of God and Christianity backing him. So he decides that he's going to lead his his army into battle with some people who refuse to convert. And there's like 15 Spaniards versus 400 uh, warriors. And obviously, you know, Magellan gets his ass kicked and he gets basically sliced apart. He doesn't even make it out of the water. Wait, he got murdered? Yeah, he just gets straight they up murdered. do not tell you that when you're learning the one thing that people know about Magellan. 15 Spaniards row up in boats in full armor and they jump out and then all these warriors just come up with spears and stab them right there before they can even get out of the water on the beach because they're like pushing around with heavy armor and yeah but so you obviously know, they just get 400 savages are no match for our 14 god warriors <laughs> that's what magellan thought <laughs> but yeah so magellan it doesn't go well but the philippines are still claimed by spain and a little bit later that same year, in August of 1521, Hernán Cortés besieges Tenochtitlan with his native allies and wrecks shop there. Like, he just completely destroys it. If And this is where Mexico City is today, which used to be a lake. Yep. Long story short, it's not a lake anymore because of Hernán Cortés. It's causing a lot of uh, like structural problems with the old buildings in Mexico City. I believe it. Uh, did you visit Mexico City when you were down there, Jared? Oh, yeah, definitely. I got to see... Did you go to, like, the Central Plaza? I think so, yeah. I got to see the, like, castle that got besieged in Mexico City or whatever in the 1500s. Nice. There's, like, a city park there. Free for residents of Mexico City, but if you're a tourist, you got to pay money, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Mexico City's beautiful. I took a tour of, like, all of the old, like, German buildings and stuff in i don't know i should have been paying more attention to like remembering all this stuff i got some cool pictures and like the tour guide was really cool uh we talked about like the zapatistas and stuff a little bit right on but uh yeah all of the old german buildings that are amazing <clears throat> feats of architecture are like sinking into the like bog foundation under the city but yeah cortez basically tore down all of these cool pyramids i, went, I did go to a church gardens. from like the 1500s oh nice that was really cool did they have a reliquary uh a what now place for old religious artifacts oh probably i don't know i don't really know much about all that catholic shit there were like people in there praying and stuff though nice i just thought it was a gorgeous building doing catholic things oh yeah totally praying <laughs> on rosaries and stuff is that the bead cross thing Yes. Yeah. That's the bead cross thing. Yeah, I saw a lot of those. Mm hmm. Well, on the 18th of August, 1521, New Spain is declared by Cortez in what is now Mexico City. Now, this is the interesting thing. Although we're talking about colonialism and how New Spain is a colony of Spain, 
administratively, it was not a colony, but rather another kingdom, which was ruled by Charles I. Essentially, it was administered on his his behalf by a viceroy, who was basically just like the the king of the moment, right? But it was not a separate nation. It was not a separate state. It was rather an independent kingdom, which yeah. happened to have the same monarch. He's like the CEO of a subsidiary of Kraft. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great, that, that's exactly what this is. Yeah. yeah. Except for these guys didn't have season tickets to Patriots games. It was, it was cheaper to just make another like smaller company. Yeah. Than to make your company go and administer it through its already existing apparatus. Yeah, we'll franchise this shit. You can take a lot of the money. We'll get our cut, and uh, you know, they franchised it. Long yep. as you do well, I mean, not even do what we want. As long as we don't have to think about you, and the money keeps rolling in, you're pretty good. And and the franchising is a great way of looking at it because they brought the economy, the administrative features, and the religion of Spain to New Spain. They were basically running the same systems, the same feudal systems in the New World that they were already in the Iberian Peninsula and in much of Europe at the time. I guess the first thing to understand about this new kingdom of New Spain was that it was very big. And this is why it could never last. Big things, the bigger you are, the shorter you got. Sorry. But... I've done it to myself. Sorry, Jared. Don't Sorry, worry. Jared. <laughs> I mean, except unless you embody the the principles of plant like living, in which case you actually have the longest time, right? Yeah, I'm just cultivating mass. Exactly, but that was not New Spain. <laughs> so at its peak, New Spain contained all or part of present day. Mexico, California, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Florida, as well as the entire Louisiana Purchase. So that's basically all the way out to Minnesota, Wisconsin, as well as Guatemala, Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Cuba, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Trinidad and Tobago. And that's just in the Western Hemisphere, because New Spain extended to the Eastern Hemisphere with the Philippines, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the Carolina Islands, Palau, the Marshall Islands, and parts of Indonesia. And that was just Charles's, like, vacation home. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, though, the Louisiana Purchase was also in on it, because later on, more European fuckery happens, And Spain gets in with the Bourbons of France. And France trades Spain all of the Louisiana Purchase, what would become the Louisiana Purchase, for, I think, some, like, territory around the Pyrenees. Okay, and the people that lived in that area had no idea. Yeah, probably um, (laughs) they never even knew that either uh, instance had, had occurred. Yeah, they just knew eventually there's a hell of a lot more trappers from France. Yeah. Are all these French trappers around? 
So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how the economy of New Spain differed from the economy of Old Spain, because there was a key distinction. You know, when you think feudalism, you're thinking all your lords and ladies, right? Mm-hmm. These people have titles to land, which means that even though you might be the king of Castile, you have various noblemen who have basically that same type of property right, but associated with smaller subdivisions of land and real estate. So it's kind of like you have to, you know, it's a type of federalism in a sense. And that the noblemen, you know, can levy their own forces. They have their own, like, lands to, to tax and people to till, right? Yeah, I mean, it's where the structure of our government comes from. Absolutely. They didn't want to do that in the New World, though, because the king of, you know, Charles I wanted to have maximum control. They basically didn't want to distribute any titles. There was no title, titled nobility in the New World. Instead, they used this thing called the encomienda system. Okay. Now, don't worry. I know you're worried about your capitalism there. It'll still come. It'll just fall into capitalism with the hacienda system. I was going to say, it's like neoliberalism for feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like feudalism, but... With more central focus, I guess. Which, you know, when you're talking about half the world is going to work out really well. Yeah. But you got, like, a bunch of administrators now, <laughs> not landed people. Exactly. You got a viceroy. You've got a middleman. You've got a Jared in there, right? He doesn't own the means of production. Yeah. Instead of, like, other nobility, though, you have, like, people that work for you. Exactly. That's what the encomienda system is set up to do. And mainly for the people who were out there doing the conquering, right? So all of the guys, not necessarily people like Cortez, they got off a little bit better. But all of these, you know, grunts who had to like go from Madrid to the New World and then like murder a bunch of native peoples and infect them with smallpox and nearly die a bunch of times in the jungle. You know, they had to get something for their efforts. And what they got was the encomienda system which was basically a system by which you would distribute native labor amongst the conquistadores and the settlers. Mostly for mining, right? Mostly for mining, but also um, for agriculture as well. Yeah, like sugarcane and stuff. Exactly. A lot of the cash crops that were becoming popular sugar in Europe cane, at the time. coffee, tobacco, mm -hmm. all those nice consumer goods. Like I said, Jared knows some colonialism. <laughs> And basically, these uh, the encomienda could demand tribute in labor from the native people who were already living there. So they were already there farming. You're not necessarily going to go out there and kill them. That was a byproduct of the disease. But this system says you have to keep them there because that's your source of labor. They're going to get the shit out of the mines. They're going to be the people who you tax. Yeah, right? where else are you going to get labor? Africa? Come on. Fuck. Well, they tried that and... Um, Basically, they decided not to do it. That was kind of one of the interesting things. We'll, we'll get there, though. Too much overhead. Yeah. I mean, that, that was it. They already were there. They had the encomienda system, which worked pretty well. It was basically a type of slavery, right? Because what you're saying is we have all these native people who are living on our land, and we can just go and demand things from them whenever we want and demand them to give us their labor if we need people to build a bridge or dig a mine. Hey, 
guys yeah. get on it if you're having trouble understanding this go watch a bug's life and then come back <laughs> yeah and so you don't need to do slavery right you don't really need there's the the economic demand the overhead isn't isn't justified and so there's are never as many there are there are several thousands of african slaves imported to the into new spain but way way fewer than into english colonies at this time So yeah, this kind of led to, as Jared kind of pointed out, the planting of cash crops and eventually the hacienda system, which kind of would expand that to include like industrial type labor, like um, making textile goods or, you know, manufacturing weapon parts or something like that. That type of system would eventually kind of give way to, you know, the private ownership of means of production in the form of the hacienda as the, the power of the Spanish nobility waned. Now, that wasn't the case in all instances, though. And this is, I, I, I think you'll love this, Jared. I'm excited to tell you this. All right. There was one title in New Spain given out. And I bet you can guess to who it is. Uh, right at the beginning. Who, who's, who's your big guy? Who made the big play? Cortez. So you're going to make one title for New Spain, and you're going to give it to Cortez, right? King of Genocide. This is the Marquess or the Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca. Oh, he even got the coolest part of Mexico. Not only the coolest part, this was 11,500 square kilometers of free land, not just in Oaxaca, but all the most fertile, productive, and populated by natives land all over Mexico. Populated by super rad natives. (laughs) <laughs> the oaxacan people seem amazing I'll, i need to go to oaxaca at some point i've heard only good things about oaxaca but yeah so hernan cortez gets the one title he's the marquis of the valley of oaxaca and he basically unlike the encomienda system he has around twenty three thousand people living on his land who are his vassals who basically are his feudal vassals who he can demand you know whatever he wants from right He has full civil, criminal, and judicial control over these people and this land, unlike anywhere else in in New Spain, which was all owned by the Spanish crown. That is not a good thing for them because Cortez was a very well-adjusted human being. I know we shouldn't, you know, plug too much into dynastyism, but this title still exists, Jared. What? This is a hereditary title. What do you think happens when someone inherits a bunch of free land? And then it gets handed down for 17 generations. The 17th 17th Marquess of Oaxaca, of the Valley of Oaxaca today, is Alvaro de Lanza y Figueroa, who is a private equity fund manager and Citigroup investment banker. Fuck yeah, he is. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Just carrying on the family business, dude. Yeah. And this is the funny thing is even if all these lands were stripped from the family later on through reforms and revolutions, doesn't matter because they already made their nut. The family made the nut and that that title and that money has been handed down for 17 generations. So, of course, he's a fucking city group financial asshole, right? Now he's being now he's like doing financial terrorism in Nigeria or something, probably. 
Well, according to his Wikipedia page, he hangs out in like the most elite clubs of Spain and Mexico. Obviously. Basically. Like, yeah. He like got married at like the, the place that like fucking English royalty goes on holiday in Spain, like on the Mediterranean. Insane. Yeah. yeah. He probably, pun- he probably funds people that like, I don't know, go steal the water from Fiji and sell it to Americans. Right. And when we think about gold, God and glory, that's the glory, right? Like. That's why Cortez did this shit. He knew that more more likely than not, him and all of his men would die. And they nearly did many times. But now you have the 17th Marquess of the Valley of Oaxaca, who's a Citigroup financial investor. He got the glory. And he got the labor of a whole lot of people. Holy shit. And that's worth more than money. Right. You know, when you think about that, it makes sense why the Spanish crown didn't want to have a bunch of new nobility running around New Spain. Yeah, they didn't need a bunch of competition. It's just competition. It's another power base to vie with. <laughs> but a big a big part of the way this kind of fit in with with Spain itself was through the Manila galleons. This is like kind of the first global trade route. When we think about how goods were rooted from Manila in the Philippines to Acapulco, on the Pacific coast of Mexico carried overland to Veracruz on the Atlantic coast or the Gulf coast. And then were shipped from there to Seville in Spain. What was happening was that you're getting all the gold and, and specifically silver from mines in like Bolivia and Ecuador and, and Mexico. And then you were taking that to the Philippines because Silver bars were the going rate with like the Ming Chinese merchants who were basically selling them just the luxury goods that people wanted in Europe, like spices and silk. And, you know, I don't know, Jared, when you think about economics, it's just always so dumb because you're trading like just like raw silver Mm -hmm. for like for like spices and silk. I'll take the spices and silk. Fuck silver. I mean, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Both <laughs> sides are dumb. Like, like, man, I don't know. Yeah, spices and silk, good. But but obviously, one of those things you can renew and one of those things you can't, right? Eventually, you're going to run out of silver in those mines. That's what I'm saying. Spices Fuck and silk, silver. you can keep growing. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do with the silver anyway? <laughs> exactly. But, um, so, th- so, yes, this is... This the, is just trickle-down economics. Think of all the jobs right. that the Spanish crown is generating around the world. Exactly, because in Seville, you have to have men like doing shipping and transportation, making olive oil. How much olive oil do you have to send to the new world every year? Like all these people are cooking with olive oil, right? You got to have an olive oil barrel in every home. That's how they do it in Spain. Or why would you do it any other way in a different place? Exactly, because this is this is just new Spain. Well, you think you're going to cook with like some other type of oil? You know that the only, you know that the only good Catholic oil is olive oil. Good Roman Catholics only use Spanish olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> For good Romans. <laughs> okay. So this process is what we now have come to know as the global transfer of wealth from south to north, or rather the beginning of it, because this continues to this day, right? One of the things I wanted to point out, a lot of the places that were in New Spain are now part of America. And America tried to conquer a lot of these places. 
obviously with the instances of like the Philippines, we did all the Arvar atomic testing, like in the Marianas and Palau, the Marshall Islands, right? That's These are all territories we took from New Spain. And we even tried to conquer what was once New Spain in Central America with our secret wars of the Cold War, right? Like we were funding death squads in these areas to, you know, further our economic interests as little as 50 years ago. I mean, you're saying this in the past tense. Right. Look at the recent instance of the coup in Bolivia. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's taken a different form. We don't want the actual land anymore. We just want the labor and the goods. Yeah. All that uh, sweet, what is the element? What's the rare earth element? Lithium. Yeah. (laughs) All that sweet, sweet lithium. All right. So, yeah. But this is the beginning of that that wealth transfer, which, as you, as we say, continues continues today. At, but just this, in the 15th Was this around the time when aluminum was insanely valuable? Probably, yeah. Like, didn't like... So, like, the nice silverware in the king's castle was probably made out of aluminum, not silver, because... Now, I don't know about that. <laughs> there was like this conception that aluminum was super rare. That's just it. It's like with gold, right? Gold has no innate value. I mean, it's got like some cool properties. A few cool properties, but in terms of actual like utility value, it's very, it's basically nil, right? It just looks nice. I mean, it doesn't tarnish. That's nice. <laughs> And yet, you know, what's the first thing that Pizarro does when he conquers the Incas is he like demands all the gold. And these people are just like giving him their plates and shit. It's like they want our plates. What are they going to do with our plates? Right. (laughs) I just it's absurd. It's absolutely. It's like if I was like eating off of Tesla stock earlier. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Economics. Compostment of history. (laughs) In the 1500s alone, Spain held the equivalent of 1.5 trillion 1990 US dollars from the from New Spain in gold and silver. 1.5 trillion dollars. Now here's the interesting thing though. Even in spite of all that money, it did not it did not translate into the development of the metropole in Spain. And Jared, I just hate it when we do these history topics that have no bearing on current events or modern society. Yeah, that'd be weird if... Really unfortunate. That'd be weird if a country was, like, exploiting everyone around the world and the major military power and uh, getting a And they couldn't even develop. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, their infrastructure is just crumbling at the hands of, like, completely incompetent leaders. Right. Of course, a good or a, a good strategy gamer knows you take that those goods and then you like build factories and, you know, public services and stuff. Right. Yeah. And then you'll be better at taking more stuff from other people. There you go. When you have to eventually fight, you know, World War One back in Europe. But yeah, this did not happen, unfortunately, in Spain, although it did in other places. So there's a couple of reasons for for the fact that that wealth didn't really do jack shit for the actual country of Spain. Too many startup companies. The first has to do with Roman Catholicism again. And in a sense, yeah, it's too many startup companies. 
one thing that happens, of course, is the Protestant Reformation and also in this time period, 1517. And you know, you can't have Protestants running around telling people they can like interpret the Bible on their own. And you got to, you know, get a bunch of mercenaries from Sweden and Switzerland to go and, you know, kill some Protestants. You got to. Got to. Yeah. (laughs) So Spain basically gave the Roman Catholic church a huge amount of money just to buy mercenaries to fight wars with Protestants in mainland Europe. And the other thing is that piracy becomes a big problem for Spain. Spain starts to lose tons, tons of wealth, material wealth to pirates on these Manila Galleon trade routes. And interestingly, a lot of those pirates are just people from England and, you know, the low countries, like what we now call Amsterdam, Holland, those areas. Holland or the Netherlands. Netherlands. It's like the same place somehow. Right. English and Dutch pirates, which were actually financed by the first true stock markets. Because one of the things about being a pirate is you've got a margin, right? You know, you don't know how much, how much you're going to get in the first place, even if you are successful and you got to get funders. So you go to the stock market. (laughs) Time to get some speculation going. (laughs) That's what they were doing. It's Jared. I mean, yeah, yeah. You you need a stock market so you can fund pirates to go and steal from your neighbors. The world is so hard to understand. <laughs> so basically, by 1700, you know, Spain is is broke, right? And then you get the whole War of the Spanish Spanish Succession. Try and say that three times fast the war War of of the spanish succession succession nah (laughs) i'm good in which dude how how pissed would you be if you were like one of these motherfuckers in a silver mine and like guatemala (laughs) and like your entire family and your body is just ruined by this and then you're like are you fucking kidding me these cocksuckers are broke and we're still doing this shit (laughs) Like, can, can we just fucking go home at this point? Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is like the whole outpost in the Philippines was never profitable at any point in time. Having Just having it there, it never actually by itself brought a profit. It was just to be the, the, the feed mouth, right? That was it. Anyway. That was the loss leader. Right. It, there you go. Yeah. So the Bourbons were another one of these royal families, dynasties in Europe, and they were running France at this time. And they tried to take over Spain and do a personal union between France and Spain. Of course, to countries like England, um, Prussia becoming a big thing around this time, and Russia, that's that's a big no-go because you're messing with the balance of power, right? You can't have like another super state like what we saw with charles the first it's just something they won't allow so they go to war over it and what happens is that the bourbons get to run spain and new spain but they're never able to actually form like a union with france it kind of has to be like a separate part of their house like they have some like nephew go off and say you're just going to do your own thing over here now but the th- the fact is, is that for a hundred years, that nephew still knows who his uncle is, right? 
So in in effect, it's a personal union. De facto. Right. And so the bourbons are able to kind of keep things together for a while, but eventually by the late 18th century, they're just not holding things together well in New Spain. And they try to centralize control. This is going to be a big theme in our series when we look at the actual like Texas Revolution with the Mexican central government trying to centralize control. Same thing happens with New Spain in the 1770s. And this is when they decide that uh, bureaucratic positions in New Spain should not be held even by those Criollos those racially elite Spaniards born in country. You have to have people from Iberian Peninsula, Spain, running your viceroyalty in these New World colonies. That's the only way you can trust that they'll get shit done and actually represent your interests. Because again, by now, you've got basically competition. You've got all this wealth accumulating that's not under your direct auspices. And people are starting to get connections to these places that they're living in. And, of course, that leads to resentment among the well-to-do families of Spanish descent in New Spain, like the Lopez de Santa Anas of Veracruz. That might be a good spot to leave off, but it actually felt like a pretty natural endpoint. Okay. We tied it right back in with Santa Ana. Let's see here. So we got to wind this down a little bit. Yeah. Any final thoughts, James? Like we like we said, it's it's really just amazing looking at the way that economies in just the most irrational ways motivate history, right? Like gold, something that has no material value in essence, except that it looks nice and yeah, it doesn't doesn't varnish. No special material value. But yeah, it's not particularly useful for anything. And yet that's what, you know, the global reserve currency was based upon for, you know, hundreds of years was how much gold was in the fucking treasury, right? Even the even America did that. And I think it's just insane. Like why? Like obviously it's not true. No, we got to go back to the gold standard. <laughs> That's when everything really started going downhill or whatever, you know. But yeah, just think about Pizarro, like sending his thugs to kick in the homes of like these Incan families. And then they're taking their plates and stuff. Sure, probably for those families, it was like a nice plate. Like it was a really fancy one. But still. Taking all of their gold was far from the worst thing that those people did to the Incans. Oh, far from it. Far <laughs> from it, yes. Future, future topic for sure is going to be the particular, basically the Incan Empire which was run on a very feudal system, even during this time period in the 1500s. Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, can I point out one other thing? Yeah. Interestingly, the encomienda system, which I said was kind of a little different than feudalism in Europe, but mm -hmm. shared some similarities, that was basically modeled on the relationship that the Machica or the Aztecs had with their vassal states, where they could demand labor tribute or resources um, in a similar fashion. Yeah, well, a little bit of syncretism can do pretty well outside of religious stuff even. Well, I think that also has to do with why New Spain developed differently than the colonies, right? In that they were had more access points to just kind of hook right in 
with the cultural traditions that were already there. Yeah, it was like with the the like Dutch East Indies and stuff too. Like the crown doesn't directly own any of the things, but they get like the they get the benefit from the activities of these companies, yeah. you know. Except for they don't have to yeah. do all the work anymore. Mhm. You're just outsourcing labor. Exactly. And and frankly, when the people are already there doing agriculture and you can just start taxing them, you know, Hey, easy peasy, right? Yeah. You know, you just show up and be like, all right, you're good at that. Uh, you're going to give me a certain portion of that or we'll kill you. Right. You know, you mentioned the horrors, right? Like the horrors of co- colonialism in this time period. Yeah. I thought you were going to say I mentioned the band, the horrors or something. Oh, no. <laughs> the the pivotal scene in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Which again, I mean, that's from colonialism in yeah. in Dutch East, in Belgium's East Africa, Congo, right? Oh yeah, the horror, the horror. But they're too numerous to to count. And in terms of like understanding why things are the way they are right now, I'm not sure that dwelling upon it is particularly helpful. You can find that in other podcasts, though, if you want. I think Dan Carlin does a lot with that. Um, <laughs> I would say a great resource on the conquest of Mexico is Daniele Bellelli's, what is it, Conquest of Mexico? Well, I mean, the podcast is called uh, History on Fire. Yeah, Daniele Bellelli's History on Fire. Yeah, I think it's just called The Conquest of Mexico. Excellent series, though. So there are other podcasts out there that dwell more on the nitty-gritty like experience of conquistadores and the, the Aztec people, the Machica people. And it's definitely interesting. Oh, yeah. But I don't think it's really illustrative of why things developed the way they did. Well, I mean, those podcasts don't really make a claim to do that, though. They That's true. They claim to, like, immerse you in, like, epic history or whatever. Which is fun. You know, that's fun as well. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah. I just don't know that it's that useful to understand things. Yeah. Well, let's let's leave it off there, and I think I've got some good stuff to to work with. All right. If they ever make that like history time machine, though, the place I need to go to is fucking Tenochtitlan before like the conquest, and see like the floating gardens and like you know before I over romanticize this too much, probably get sacrificed for like (laughs) being a demon or something. Should we do like an? I don't know. So we hardly ever do an honest outro, Jared. Should we like make a run at an honest outro in case anyone has stumbled upon this podcast and made it this far? Oh yeah, definitely. How do we do that again? <laughs> Thanks for listening. We've been the Compostman of History. I've been James. I've been Jared. Eating on the mic once again. <laughs> As of course is tradition. <laughs> Um, as is tradition <laughs> contact us with any uh comments or questions at compostbinofhistory at gmail.com and uh, and send us your gardening questions yeah tell us what you're excited about gardening wise for 2021 yeah tell us uh you know what new what new varieties <laughs> might you be planning for your garden this year yeah we got to get like age sex location but garden so what do we got like right zone uh growing season length and something else nerdy zone average precipitation and 
growing season. Uh, oh, I was going to say aspect exposure or something like that. Oh, nobody you know, knows like... that. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wish we would have talked about on that one that we did was that container gardening, you don't have to necessarily, or gorilla garden, you don't necessarily have to have space of your own to garden. Yeah. You know, if you got awful soil, you can definitely do raised garden beds. Mm hmm. But likewise, even if you like living in an apartment, you know, hey, there's like public waste places, parks, which we would never, we would never like advise anyone to break any kind of law by planting a plant in any kind of, you know, yeah. public right of way. But, you know, claiming ignorance can be a powerful tool. <clears throat> especially, yeah. I mean, I don't know who planted that yeah. zucchini there. Yeah, I mean, especially like I just water it. You people probably like watch TV and stuff pretty clear that the cops don't know what the laws are so Mm-hmm. all right yeah let's uh let's wrap it up thanks everyone thanks jared well thank you james oh <laughs> i did a lot of research so i'm gonna accept that <laughs> yeah get it up i mean give it up Give me those minerals and those juice because it's me, the E of the A tech, and they back with this jacket, giving up all some products that I'm lacking. Well, I'm that other ruthless type of brother. Oh, you ain't heard about my antics? Shit, I ran clicks through history that left the U.S. frantic. Get us all romantic before they fuck us. Got a hand trick with a Glock. Four hundred years ago, food, where is my dough? The year is '94. Black folks ain't taking it no more. We on the rise. The crew is now the bad guys. You know, taking from the rich, giving it back to the poor. So yo, put your toothpaste to that. On the floor and get real. I can't feed my family with a happy meal. To the rescue, but now long ranger with a lasso. I got the nine millimeter pointed at your asshole. So, Mr. IBM, give it up smooth. smooth. Cause this time, hope then your bowels go move. See, it's a family thing. So, don't even trip. My cousin JD got the nine. And my mama got the extra clip. So, please, oh, please, oh, please, giving them lackeys and free cheese. And while you on them knees, break me off for my jeans. Cause we are taking the years if you don't please. Come on, we are taking the years if you please.